Dad? Yep. Where'd you go all that time? Mexico. How come? I didn't know where else to go. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Colro Lane. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just to note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. Can you believe we are at episode 100? Congratulations, podcast podna and life podna. (laughs) We're centenarians. We're like George Burns. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Wait, am I John Denver in the movie version? Uh, you'd of be that? Gracie if there's a relationship oh, here. I, I forgot about that. Sorry. To commemorate this milestone, we're going to do a special two part episode. Part one, which you're listening to right now, is going to cover a film that was chosen by our listeners on social media as the film they most wanted us to cover. Part two is going to be listener questions, and we're going to answer all the things that listeners told us they were curious about regarding us and the show. The voting for this was awfully competitive. It was neck and neck for days until the film that we're going to talk about today surged ahead right at the end. It came down to two excellent choices, with Paris, Texas being the winner. And for everyone that voted for the runner-up, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, don't fret, we may have a little surprise for you down the road. But for now... What are we talking about today? We're going to talk about The Great Paris, Texas, from 1984, directed by Vim Vendors, written by Sam Shepard and L.M. Kit Carson, with Harry Dean Stanton, Nastasia Kinski, Dean Stockwell, Aurore Clément, and Hunter Carson. Now also wait for some highlights from this amazing crew. Music by Ry Cooter, cinematography by Robbie Mueller, Claire Denis was the assistant director. Allison Anders was a production assistant. The story is about a man who reconnects with his family after four years of wandering. Do you think this is the pinnacle of Vendor's fascination with America, or at least a certain specific presentation of America? I've got some questions and follow-up answers to that as well. But yes, I do think it is the most perfect distillation of his view of America. Well, my answer to that is similar to the film in that it follows two specific lines that will eventually come around to meet. He was in love with America far more than I was at the time when this came out. When I first saw this, I was a 14-year-old kid in the middle of the Reagan era, in the middle of America, discovering punk rock. If it was mythical, I probably felt like it was a myth that needed bringing down a peg or two. On the other hand, you know how much we love to travel and experience other cultures... I only came home from Oslo because I absolutely had to. Don't be surprised if I go there one day and never return. Hopefully you'll come with me. Oh, I was going to throw that in. Yes, thank you for including me. So I can relate to what he's feeling. And that's all without the specter of East and West Germany in my background. So flight and escape and freedom to move are things that I would have definitely been taking for granted that must have been profound influences on him. Personally, I experienced this movie after I experienced the landscape that we see in the movie, so it's a bit different for me as well. I'm thinking back to that 14-year-old you watching this discovering punk rock. 
and I think if you had seen that photo of Ven Venders from one of the first days of shooting, <laughs> looking like the most German human being ever on the planet in his white shirt, white pants, suspenders, and those characteristic glasses, I think you would have been all in. Maybe. That looks a little more new wave than oh. pop rock if we're going to get down to classifications. It was probably easy for me to say at the time, hey, don't over-romanticize this thing. Because I was looking at granular things, political things, teenage things. He had a few years on me, so he was seeing things that I wouldn't come to understand or admire for a while. The political always takes a backseat to the personal in Vendor's films, and he was seeing something akin to that larger Carl Sandburg idea of America that I appreciate so much. I have found a way to reconcile those things over the years, the reality and the ideal, and things like Paris, Texas played a huge part in that. I'd like to jump in here for a second and continue to talk about this myth idea. The myth of the American West is the myth that it's a place for lost souls or that you can get lost there or both. Because if either of those things are the case, I'm not sure that I think that they're myths. And this is coming from a person who, like you, came to Texas from another place. I really think that's what all of America is about, really. If I had to pick one, I would probably go with the latter. I don't particularly think that any specific geography has cornered the market on the idea of lost souls. I see that idea in urban places against rural backdrops. That plays out in all sorts of places all over the world. I think of it as definitely much more a place to go to get lost, just because the immensity of the landscape that we see has such potential to swallow you up, to make you feel insignificant and small in relation to what you are surrounded by. I came to Texas from Oklahoma, so it's not that huge of a difference. I lived in the southwest part of Oklahoma, so I know scrub brush and red dirt and these foothills that surround everything. You were coming from Virginia and Idaho. Was it drastically different compared to those two? And really, directly, I came here from Los Angeles, so it was pretty different. So you know what I mean about no particular geography having a hold on the idea of lost souls if you're coming from L.A.? Absolutely. And I'm also the person who went to my first year of college in Alaska because of a romantic notion. I had already been through the state several times before I had moved here. And I think that's another reason why Vem Vendors appeals to me. He makes road movies. And I love the road. Now, I have vague recollections of the reaction to this when it came out. I know it won the Palme d'Or and all, but I mean among the general movie-going public. It was such a different time then, it feels like. Mainstream viewers were just beginning to stick a toe into that indie foreign film pool. The home video boom was a seismic shift, and people had much easier access to this type of thing than, say, a decade before. They could take a chance on something like this that might have never been on their radar, but not everyone was ready for it. And I say that because I remember it being a punchline of sorts. You know, the way my dinner with Andre became the go-to caricature of the art film among people who hadn't even actually seen it. You mean it's just two guys sitting at a table talking and nothing gets blown up? That's crazy. I seem to remember Paris, Texas getting a similar reception in some quarters. People saying it was about nothing that it's too wandery, it was confusing to them. Do you remember any of that? Or should I say, by the time you got to it, was that sentiment still lingering? Because you were nine when it came out, right? So 
That's true. And I was, I think, at least aware of it. We've talked so many times about watching Siskel and Ebert forever. But I certainly wasn't keyed into any idea of what the intelligentsia was saying or what my friends and neighbors thought of it. And I'm sure they probably did not. By the time I got around to seeing it, which was only a couple of years ago, crazily enough, I didn't feel any sort of baggage around it, and I wasn't expecting anything other than I would probably love it because I love them vendors. So how about we get into this fan's choice? Okay. I want to start very first thing with the credits. That vivid red, almost like neon. And I'm going to be reminded many times of the continued use of red and green in the film. Here at first, I don't know about you, but red makes me think of danger and also anger and passion. That's my gut reaction to it in a couple of scenes, but I think red plays for the majority of the film slightly differently for me. But I'll get into that as we come to those examples. Great. And then that music begins, and this is Rye Cooter's work. And he and the vendors would work together again on Buena Vista Social Club. At first, it sounded to me like distorted wind chimes. And I think that that's interesting based on something that Rye Cooter said. Vim vendors had captured so much natural desert sound. And when Rye Cooter was working with it, he discovered that those sounds were in the key of E. And he then used it. He also said that he based the music on something I'm not familiar with, and I'm wondering if you are, and that's Blind Willie Johnson's Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground. Oh yeah, definitely. You don't work in record stores in Austin, Texas for that long, especially, you know, traveling in these circles like Antone's Records for years, one of the biggest blues record stores in the world, and not hear about that stuff. So yeah, now that you mention it, I definitely hear that coming through. Question for you, do you play the slide guitar? Is that one of your instruments? I have a slide, but it is definitely something I never mastered. I can only use it in the most rudimentary sense of playing slide guitar. What do you think about this score? Rikuder's a genius. That style of playing between he and David Lindley, some of my favorite music that was ever made, and more importantly to this, it's absolutely perfect for what you are seeing on screen. It pairs so well with Vim Vendor's visuals that the two at this point are just inextricably linked. And this soundtrack spawned so many imitators that followed in its wake. And with good reason, the playing is impeccable. And it provides the most natural transition as we get into this opening with these beautiful helicopter shots of these canyonlands, these sweeping vistas. And we spy a lone, small figure in the middle of nowhere, being watched by a bird of prey. He's out of water. He's almost comical if the surroundings weren't so severe, with these incongruous elements like his suit and tie in the middle of the desert. He's covered in dust with this red cap on. And if it's incongruous, it should catch our attention, right? So Vim Vendors is already laying out this color scheme that I latched onto. Red hat, white shirt, blue sky, against this backdrop. This is Vendors' dusty, windswept equivalent of chanting USA, it feels like to me. If we had any question about whether or not this would at least be in part about the epic mythical American West, our question has immediately been answered. This general location is called the Devil's Graveyard, and after having seen so many John Ford movies, it definitely feels like that Western landscape I'm familiar with, but almost like it's shot from behind those familiar terrains. 
The Devil's Graveyard is definitely a much more punk rock name than Monument Valley. I'll give him that. <laughs> well, Harry Dean Stanton stumbles his way through this landscape, and he comes upon a bar or a store or some a little bit of both. I wrote it as a roadside something. And this place has as much dust on the pool table as it has on his suit. And there's a hand-lettered sign that particularly hits home for an Oki. I love this part of the set decoration. It's my favorite element of this whole opening, in fact. The dust has come to stay. You may stay or pass on through or whatever. This is our Great Plains equivalent of Abandon Hope, All Ye Who Enter Here. And then he passes out. It's very important here to note that he doesn't take the contents of the fridge, which is entirely beer. He just gets some ice before he keels over. And this is Terlingua. And in this green wash on this doctor slab, he refuses to speak. Yeah, that odd green light, it gets your attention right away, right? It's permeating this examination room. And so we have our full color scheme, at least the way I perceive it, established now. As the film continues, watch for these instances of red, white, and blue versus green and black. I even noticed a new one in waiting for you to transcribe the scene that we did. When you were watching some sections back in slow motion, I realized, oh, wait, there's another, there's another. Yeah, we can't say enough about the use of color in this thing. When you take individual frames, and I know he's a big influence on vendors, you can just see Edward Hopper, who I love as well. And part of that, I think, is Robbie Mueller, the mm -hmm. cinematographer. Jim Jarmusch had said that Mueller considered himself to be a sort of a painter, and he was fascinated by the relationship of color and motion. I think never more prevalent than in this film. Well, if you're a cinematographer and those are your two particular preoccupations, you couldn't find a much better working partner than Ben Benders. But in this green light, as Travis is on the table, they find a card on him with a name on it, and they call to discover that it's his brother, who will get there as fast as he can. And full disclosure, when Dean Stockwell says, where's that? The first thing I thought was, well, he's clearly not a Texan, because... No real Texan does not know where Terlingua is. Absolutely. I still haven't been there, though. It's a wonderful place, and it hasn't changed much, which, again, I'm going to talk about a little bit more later. So we get a classic one-sided fun call. <laughs> in that way that they give us tidbits of exposition. What will I tell them about Travis? Tell who about Travis is the first thing you think of. So we have a mystery already. And Walt heads out to solve this mystery... And he meets with the doctor. And again, there's a lot of landscape in the background of this meeting. And you see just how much room there is for a man to get into a lot of trouble over four years. I want to jump back to Walt for just okay. a moment. We first see him in front of a facade, we realize. It's a pretty convincing one, but it's still a facade. And his wife, Anne, seems almost inclined to maybe leave Travis where he is. Another mystery. And I love as well that the world of Walt and Anne in L.A. is just outskirts and suburbs. Well, the doctor tells Walt at this meeting, Travis has disappeared as of early this morning, which should come as a surprise to exactly no one. So which is the most Travis direction to go? It's off the beaten path as the crow flies. He seems so intent. Once he leaves the doctor's office, do you think he knows where he's going he comes off as incredibly purposeful, and he's moving so quickly, there has to be some terminus point. And at the same time, when Walt finally catches up with him, Travis seems shell-shocked to me. 
So is it almost sort of a muscle memory more than anything? Do you think anyone but his brother could have found him too? Just randomly picking a direction and going off and coincidentally, this is where Travis is. How are you feeling about the Travis character this early in the film? What are your perceptions of him right now? The same that I feel for any character, I always want to know why. What's his motivation? What is this destination? What was this journey that he's been on? Why won't he speak? That's the biggest thing. Well, the name Jane is mentioned in this conversation in the car. Another piece of the puzzle is offered. Who's Jane? And it had me thinking a lot about how narrative tension comes from withholding information, in some cases as long as possible. An exposition is tough sometimes. Family talking amongst themselves wouldn't naturally go into a lot of explanation with each other about situations and conditions that they should all be intimately familiar with already. This isn't a traditional mystery either, so how long can that information be withheld until it feels like a betrayal, like you're cheating the audience? We've talked about some other films, even one in the recent past, like The Duke of Burgundy, where I said I was glad that that information wasn't withheld from me for the entirety of the movie. And then I appreciate here that it's withheld a bit longer than that, and that my expectations are subverted, like with Walt, for example. Yes, you are right. I know we fix on Travis because he is the cipher in this thing, but we shouldn't discount Dean Stockwell's contributions here. Walt is an interesting character, and you can feel he's doing his best. When thinking about the inner lives of these two men, it's an odd and difficult situation for him to be in. There may have even been times in the past four years that he resigned himself to the fact that his brother was dead. The rush of emotions that he must be feeling and trying to rein it in, that struggle shouldn't be ignored or diminished. And still, regardless of what he's going through personally, he has to treat Travis a little bit like an animal that spooks easily. Sitting on this motel bed together, there's closeness, but Travis clearly reacts to being touched on the leg. Did you just assume that Travis was going to bolt at every opportunity, you'd have to be really worried about him by now. Absolutely, I was there. And I don't have a sibling. You do. I can't imagine what this would feel like. And there are multiple relationships at play here, which adds to the richness of the film. And Travis is just so inscrutable. Walt tells him there's nothing out there. But that might be Travis's point precisely. Can I please get back to that nothing? And I mentioned that we get our expectations subverted. We may be thinking, at least in part, that Walt is the less sympathetic of the characters if we're going to be pitched to put one person above another, which thankfully we're not. And that, for me, was eliminated right away when Walt calls home. He says, it's daddy. And then in the next breath, I'm here with your father. And asks Hunter, who we come to find out is Travis's son, if... Hunter remembers Travis, and that he's bringing him home. So that moment turns quickly, and there's nothing hidden here. And then we see more of that as Walt fills in what has happened, at least for them, over these last few years. Hunter was dropped off at their doorstep. He didn't know what had happened to his parents, and Walt and his wife Anne have taken Hunter in. More pointedly, they've raised him as their own son. And I have to say, the device of the mute slash amnesiac is a really great excuse to get exposition out. It sure is. But we're about to get a little bit of a breadcrumb here. Finally, Travis is ready to say something, and that is Paris. 
and he asks if they can go there. And this first means of speech seems really childlike, very guileless. Walt assumes that he means France and kind of writes it off from there. And continuing with that same concept of he's kind of acting like a child here, Travis refuses to get on the plane to go to LA. They've got to take the long way. They've got to drive there. In that first exchange, he shows Walt a picture of a vacant lot in Paris, Texas, and Travis owns that lot. And he forgot why, he says, but did he really? This sort of catatonic state is something that I have no experience with, and so I find it really compelling to watch him gradually return to the world of the living, for lack of a better term. We find out in a bit that Travis bought that land because he imagines that's where he was conceived. So he isn't as completely rootless as we might be led to believe. Home is an idea that occupies at least a little space in his head. But you're right. Walt says, I can't afford the time. Well, he's going to have to make time because that plane's not going anywhere. And it is almost like traveling with a kid. Travis asks at one point, is four years a long time? And after the plane debacle, he says, it's all right if you leave me, which is both true and not true. They have to find and use the same rental car at Travis's insistence. So Walt has to constantly cope with Travis's childlike grasp of time, reality, humor. To his credit, he does so gently and patiently for the most part. It seems like he understands something bigger is at stake than just getting back to work. And you can see that in the landscape, too. Our petty day-to-day concerns are just so small against this big open backdrop, against the wide world that is out there waiting for us. Even though he's begun to speak a little, Travis is still not ready to tell his story yet. And as they're traveling and becoming reacquainted, Travis is gradually regaining more of himself. What do we infer from these episodes and conversations? These people are obviously moving at two different velocities in two wholly different spheres, You talked about how you were glad that you weren't forced to choose or side with one over the other, but do you pity or envy or otherwise just identify with one more than the other? You know, I really don't. I don't think that I'm coming from the same standpoint of either of them. I do find Travis's gradual transformation back into who he is to be really fascinating. We're just given more to work with with him. It's that muscle memory again. It takes a while to learn how I used to react to things, what this person does and how being around them makes me feel and makes me remember. And then again, there's that idea of Paris, Texas and what it represents, which is also something that doesn't necessarily call to anything inside of me. I think of it like home, as you said, but also almost like a beginning, a new beginning. We learn another part of what this represents, this almost to use a Sam Shepard phrase, a lie of the mind. His father had this running joke that involved his mother, saying, I met my wife in Paris, wait for it, Texas, when everybody would think it was France. And this became, over time, something different. It becomes the truth in a different way. But also, I think, a symbol of not knowing what you have or who another person is. But I'm kind of jumping ahead a bit. Well, we talked about this a little bit in the beginning, and we often read into these things in the way that most satisfies us as a viewer. But I would have to say, watching this travelogue, that freedom is a huge reason that Vendors likes this idea of America and the road so much. It feels like frontier. It's so free of boundaries, so much room to roam still. Germany 
could fit inside just Texas. Ireland could. England could. You can put Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Slovenia, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Macedonia, Switzerland, and Austria all into Texas together and still have room left over. So it's easy to understand how wide open and limitless this might feel for a European. And you don't have to stop in Fort Stanton and get gas. <laughs> it feels that way to me, and I'm from here. I particularly feel it in the scene where they're eating at the outdoor table with the train in the background. I love this scene so much. It may be my favorite in the whole thing. And that's because it brims with this potential energy that comes from being on the road. That train horn, that exciting feeling that anything can happen, that we can go any direction we want. This is the point that Travis wants to drive, and I can completely empathize with that. I read a lot of pieces about this saying that it's celebrating a way of life that's gone now, but I don't know that that's entirely true. Huge parts of West Texas are still just like this. You can walk out the door, get in your car, and still find this America. All the expense and logistics of shooting a road movie, these are the kind of scenes that make it worth it. To me as a viewer, this feels so good. And we've done a little bit together of the Route 66 stuff, mm -hmm. which does still feel the same as it did 60 years ago, even though, of course, there's also a bit of a facade to that. But I know what you mean. I've been all across this country. I've been to 49 of 50 states, and there are a whole lot of places to see. And now we are back at Walt's place in a suburb of L.A., and there's still definitely a huge vista but it's one of suburban lights and freeways, and it's near the airport. It's pivotal because this is where Travis meets Hunter. And again, look for the green of one of these critical episodes. The light in the stairwell has kind of a green tint to it. Whatever flooring surface that is that Anne is standing on, slightly green tint to it. All of the greens here made me at first think of safety and security and some nature, but it's all unnatural greens because it's created from fluorescence. And then I don't think we can underestimate the green of jealousy. A little bit of that there too. Well, Travis tries gamely to settle in as part of the household, not rocking the boat. He's doing the dishes, singing songs. From the sequence with the dishes, do you infer that Mexico was a big part of this mystery? The Spanish song that he's singing. Mm. He's taking care of little household details, polishing shoes, red, white, and blue, if you notice. Putting everything in order, just so. Trading new boots for old, just getting comfortable. It's baby steps. It's a moment to breathe a little, to reconnect with life's smaller satisfactions. And it's a reasonable consideration. I haven't even been out in my own personal wilderness for four years, and I can relate. Those satisfactions... I don't know how often I feel that anymore. Do you? Because it's so hard sometimes to feel like that we're making the most of the time we have. I don't know. I felt pretty great when I was moving those chips ahoy into the tin <laughs> so they wouldn't get hard. I do want to specifically say this is when we meet Anne. And I was also poised to think, what is this relationship going to be like? But it's incredibly warm. Clearly, they have a history together that's a positive one. Yes, everyone, especially Anne, it seems like, are doing everything they can to help him reintegrate with society. When they first meet again, she is such a gentle, loving, pure, reassuring presence against this backdrop of bright blue skies. I was thinking if this were Wings of Desire, she would have been an angel. Now, we've also met Hunter, Travis's son. He's about seven. 
he's reluctant to engage with Travis, and Travis doesn't push it hard. But just like Travis insisted on not flying and using that same car to travel back in, when Travis offers to walk Hunter home from school, Hunter petulantly refuses. Nobody walks, everybody drives. And I think my favorite moment is after Hunter has actually evaded Travis, who has waited for him anyway. Hunter has gone to hide out in the garage to go driving, as he says. He's sitting behind the wheel of their bug. And I used to do that all the time, too. Yeah, you're going to see a lot of parallels in Hunter and Travis's behaviors. He's clearly his father's son in a lot of ways. He needs time before he's ready to speak, just like Travis. It's difficult and confusing for him, too. And you fix on one of the details that make me love this kid so much. That scene and the walkie-talkies in particular. I have a real affinity for this kid. To mediate all this, though, Walt tries to pull a little story out of Travis, and that's not exactly working. And then he brings up that he recorded a trip. And he has these home movies with Jane in them. So we get our first glimpse of her about an hour into the film, finally. It does not feel like an hour to me. Did it to you? No, not at all. This movie flies by so fast for me. I'm with you. I don't get the whole nothing happens or it's dull or it's boring. That seems crazy to me. As they're watching these home movies, this time when all five of them were together, when Hunter was very young, Travis is not completely able to watch Jane. And this has the effect of bringing them closer together, at least drawing Hunter out a bit. I like how this flashback is deployed as literal media. It's a very cinephile thing to do to make the flashback actual film as well. And you're right, this is a tough one for Travis. But Walt is fairly insistent about this. Is this a for Travis's own good moment? Something to force him back up onto his emotional feet again? Here's what I like to think. I like to think that Walt is just a good guy. I also like to think that everyone is adult enough to realize that it doesn't have to be one thing or the other. When Hunter says, good night, dad, times two, basically, that's a good thing. There doesn't have to be just one person. There's room for all of us to make this family together. I also think, and maybe that's just because of how great Hunter Carson here is, that he gives Hunter the benefit of the doubt. He knows he's a smart kid. Hunter shows that to us. He asks Anne if she thinks that Travis still loves Jane. He seems smart enough to get it. He's clearly perceptive, but it's not too much. These conversations don't feel unnatural a little bit to you? They don't to me. I don't feel that this is a precocious child actor here. Because I'm thinking more of that moment that comes a little later when Travis goes to meet Hunter again. He's all dressed up this time and they walk on parallel sidewalks, goofing together. And then later when they're looking at photo albums, Hunter tells him, I could always feel you walking around and talking. I can feel mom, too. It seemed a little beyond the scope of a seven-year-old. Okay, this is from the guy who, at four years old, was caught reading a paper and <laughs> drinking coffee at I the kitchen table. I wasn't caught. That was my daily routine. <laughs> well, there you go. I was a definite kid, too, and I'm a definite adult. I guess I feel most closely aligned to Hunter, if anything. You know, maybe it is a bit forced. It still feels real to me within the scope of the film. That's Sam Shepard. That's L.M. Kit Carson as well. And then I think that that's Vim Vendors. He made one of our favorites, Alice in the Cities, with another great child actor. He has that ability to draw out a great performance. And the best child actors are those who can convey the truth without extra emoting or embroidery. 
Well, the other question I had when I'm watching this is, who is this girl that she's in love with Harry Dean Stanton with the obvious age difference? I don't feel like any of the mystery is cleared up by actually seeing her. I now have more questions than I ever had in the first place. I go back to some of the work that Nastasia Kinski had done in developing this character. She created this backstory of an incredibly young European who had immigrated, clearly had a really troubled childhood, and this person was a father figure, essentially, the first person who had been kind to her. And I think you can see the genuine warmth in that home movie, especially when Harry Dean Stanton smiles. But yes, that doesn't mean that I can see romantic love in the same way. The thing that occurred to me watching them all together was that it might be seen as a little more cruel, I think, if Hunter were not also in the home movies. His presence is a bit of a buffer. You mentioned the good night, Dad. There's also a nice moment where Hunter just moves closer to him so they can see him a little bit better, it feels like. We had talked about how we see Walt and why he's doing this. The person we now get to hear more from is Anne and her concerns. Understandably, she seems afraid of losing Hunter. This is a position that she was thrust into initially, and she loves him. And she's upset that Walt seems to be actively encouraging them to reconnect, not maybe putting his own feelings first, and definitely not putting hers first. Does that read as a little selfish to you? There are a lot of conflicting emotions that are going on here, obviously. I think there is some selfishness by everyone, and I think all of it is understandable. And again, we're going to continue to have those expectations or those initial thoughts subverted. It definitely undermines what I initially thought of her. Maybe she's not so pure after all, but she has such a legitimate claim. She has devoted a significant portion of her life, half of his life, to raising him as her own son. It was no small sacrifice, I am sure, and the bond that she feels is real. So she goes and has this conversation with Travis, and she tells Travis that Jane used to call, but she made Anne promise that she wouldn't tell. She was calling from Texas. There's a bank in Houston that's a clue, and there is no more blue sky here. This scene is bathed in red light, so does Anne have diabolical intentions? What's her motivation for telling him this? To get him to go? I think about the passion again. I think she's a bit angry, but no one here is a one-dimensional monster. They've been in this state of limbo. She's a mother, but at the same time, Hunter knows that he has another mother. It's a fine line for everyone to walk, and they've chosen to walk it with love more than anything. I specifically think the red is employed here for that moment when Travis seems to come back into himself, when Anne is talking about what Jane had shared with her that she couldn't be a mother to Hunter, and Travis gets angry for the first time. I didn't think he had it in it. He says she stopped being a mother a long time before that. That's a big deal. And when he talks about how he used to be full of rage, that's the red to me. There are all sorts of great lighting touches right here. Meanwhile, while this is all happening, I love this shot of Hunter laying awake in his bed with his illuminated globe right behind his head, as if he's dreaming about how much there is out there to see and experience in the world. Bender's quietly telling us that he may have inherited some of his father's wanderlust. I had an inflatable globe when I was a kid that we got from the Smithsonian. If I didn't spend all my money on DVDs, it would be all globes and maps in this house. I know I married the right person, for sure. 
Well, before we get away from this scene, we should really point out how much the development of Walt and Anne, with relatively little screen time, really shows the quality of the writing. They're not just a stock, anonymous sitcom idea of a middle-class family. And Dean Stockwell and Aurora Clement do such an admirable job of making them truly three-dimensional characters. I'm thinking about something Travis said here, which we're going to see play a time and time again. That he knew that Jane wanted something, he just couldn't figure out what it was or how to give it to her. Do you think possibly the same is true for Walt and Anne? Here comes a patented Erica Long yes and no answer. <laughs> Go I for would it. say yes, it's similar in that Walt does not have the most clear, most true idea of what is in Anne's heart. But it's different in that it doesn't seem born out of selfishness and rage and neglect the same way that makes a gulf between Travis and Jane. Because like you say, Walt is a good guy. He's constantly trying to facilitate, to reunite, to reconnect. In Walt's case, I think it's just that he's so busy all the time that his routine, that thing I was saying earlier about having or making time to connect to life's smaller satisfactions, his day-to-day -day life, he's drifted away from that, unfortunately. Well, now we all know that Jane is going to be in Houston on the 5th of the month, and today is the 1st. So Travis walks all night, and he's clearly made a decision he tells Walt about it first. He's going to find Jane. And that brother relationship is incredibly rewarding still. There's love there. Walt pushes and then doesn't push. And more than anything, there's trust. I did want to mention before we get to that particular point, there is this scene where Travis is walking across a bridge and he encounters this man who's raving wildly with these doomsday scenarios. And I think what Travis sees is that this is someone who is headed the direction that he is coming back from. They are obviously very clearly crossing, moving in opposite directions. Based on the comparison of the two men, do you feel like this man on the bridge is beyond saving? He's much farther down the dystopian fire and brimstone road than it seems like Travis ever went. I think so. I don't feel that it's an accident that he's on the bridge facing outward as if he might jump. I do love that moment that we'll see in Wings of Desire when Travis gives him a hand on the shoulder. Well, back to up on the billboard with Travis and Walt. Yes, Travis has made up his mind that he's leaving. Walt doesn't want that, clearly. At least not yet. And he isn't satisfied not knowing the answer. Do you feel like Travis owes him more of an explanation? Is there anything to be done about that? Gosh, I don't know. What do we owe each other? If he's going to put him in this position, I would say, yes, Travis should reveal it. Maybe he just truly can't yet. When he finally does, speaking with Hunter, it does seem like that's the right moment. Well, ultimately, what Walt wants doesn't matter, which is what you could potentially see as a troubling trend with Travis. How much should we credit Vendors versus Stanton for how we feel about this character, do you think? He's inscrutable, yes, but he's not just a blank for us to project onto. There's much more going on here than that. I don't think it's quite that simple. What do you feel? The biggest thing that comes across for me is that these are people in middle age, and for Harry Dean Stanton, late middle age at this point. He was almost 60 years old. This is a guy who every road is written on his face, so it's at least got to be I think mostly from him. He's the one who has to put this across. 
Because I think if he hadn't been able to, I would have been one of those people walking away from it being just angry. I never learned anything. Nothing was told to me. I couldn't figure any of it out. It was one of those ciphers where it just made me angry. I would have felt that if it were some other actor trying to make that situation work. So you're saying Paris, Texas with Tom Selleck wouldn't have been... Probably not quite the same. I'm going to give my yes and no answer. Okay. Well, this decision is made and Travis picks up Hunter from school and they have a picnic in the back of his car, ostensibly for him to just tell him he's leaving. And as you said, he tells Hunter what happened to him for the first time, at least much more than he's told anyone else. And that's essentially one word, Mexico. Mexico is definitely part of it. I get it. And I think we're nearing the end of Travis fully regaining himself. He's become less childlike at each one of these junctures. And Hunter wants to go with him, as you would think he might. You can't blame him. You can't blame either one of them. They're father and son, after all. And so they'll need supplies, maybe even walkie-talkies. Did I mention that I love this kid? <laughs> Definitely. I would travel anytime with these guys in their matching red shirts. So... It's Travis who has made this decision for everyone, for Walt, for Anne, for Jane, and for Hunter. What if it is not the right one? Of all of those people, I would say Hunter has more agency than anyone else here, and it happens a couple of times. He makes this decision to go, and then there's an even more pivotal instance that comes up soon. From the road, Travis has Hunter call home. He doesn't want to because they're going to flip out, he says. He knows the deal. But you can handle it, is what Travis tells him. Travis still has a ways to go before he is completely back to responsible adult behavior, if he ever completely gets there at all. So Hunter makes this call in another scene saturated in green. Anne's plan, if she had one, if she was scheming, has now completely backfired. And she and Walt have no recourse. It feels almost like a kidnapping, but there's obviously no sense of danger. I said it before, there are complicated feelings here. We never see Anne and Walt again in the story. It's not their story anymore. How do you feel when Hunter hangs up that phone? I think I still felt like this was not going to be the last time that they would see each other. Travis does say that. I don't know how long it would be. But I do think they'll all be together again. I really do have faith in these adults and in this kid that they know how to make that love work together. This is just going to be a really difficult time for Walt and Anne. You think Travis makes it back into the circle eventually, or does he go away forever? I'm sorry, we haven't gotten to the ending, which doesn't involve Travis, and no, I don't think that he comes back in the same way. I think he may see Walt and Anne again, but the five of them together, I don't see that happening. Well, this is all walkie-talkies and science facts. This is my <laughs> kind of trip, and it's a game for Hunter to some degree, but should we talk about the ramifications of Travis's behavior? He's going to stake out the bank in Houston, and he knows this is wrong because he's keeping his distance, obviously. He knows, if not wrong, not exactly right. One of the subcategories of the road trip is the overnight drive. And there are a lot of things built into that. Did you ever drive all night to get anywhere? Yes, as a kid, do you mean, or as an adult? No, behind the wheel. I have done some late night stuff, not solo, because I would have died. I do remember one time I went with my dad when he was still a truck driver. We drove all night to get to Richmond, which was really exciting. 
Well, that's exactly what I was thinking about. There's often an element of desperation or delirium or excitement that just goes along with this. In this case, I lean more towards desperation and delirium because this scheme seems a little crazy now. Do you feel like it felt crazy to people watching in 1984? It had to, and if it didn't, it would have the second they saw that crazy Houston-style motor bank. How in the world they would think that they could possibly spot her and get all of this done, yeah, it does seem a little bit crazy. And just loiter around with walkie-talkies. I gotta say, though, as a kid during that time, I probably would have done the same thing and felt like it was totally fine, even though, statistically speaking, that was the scariest time to be a kid. We acted like everything was just wide open. Well, crazy or not, the scheme works because Hunter wakes up just in time to spot Jane going through the drive through You referred to this a little bit earlier. I really love how Vendors works with kids. The high water mark for me definitely is Yellow Rotlander and Alice in the Cities, but it works so well here too. Even if slightly precocious or maybe just a hint unnatural, I don't ever feel like the interactions are exaggerated for comic effect or are too broad, are unnatural, it feels true. The way he works with kids, the comparison that I always think of, compare Alice in the Cities to another film from the same time period, a film I also really enjoy, Paper Moon. The differences between those two approaches are obvious and they are worlds apart. They still generate great results, but you can really see a distinct difference. The one I just thought of is another movie I love, The Goodbye Girl, and Quinn Cummings' Quinn Cummings, you are my hero, I adore you, and those are two different performances. Well, speaking of something that I also did as a kid at that age, when they catch up with her car, and they followed her to the outskirts of the city to some unknown building, Travis's plan for Hunter is that Hunter will stay in the car, roll the windows up, and lock the doors. I did that a lot as a kid. We did all these things, riding in the back of a truck on the interstate. I mean, we did every one of these crazy things that I think people would just have a heart attack now if we suggested that this is the way things should be. I personally, my spot was on top of the wheel well in the back cab. The scariest place you could possibly <laughs> be for a 30-pound kid. And yet, nothing there indicates danger. Instead, as Travis is walking up the staircase to the peep show, bright red light everywhere. The downstairs is the green part, and then it all changes. And we have a John Lurie sighting, which I'm very excited about. Well, if John Lurie works there, you know it's got to be weird. <laughs> Classy place. It's women in various stages of undress, some in costume. There's a band tuning up, and we hear that announcement, Nurse to Booth 7. It's a peep show. And Travis eventually gets into a booth and keeps trying until he gets Jane. And we don't see her for a while because it takes him a while to look at her. And she says she's a good listener. And I was thinking, are we supposed to get the impression? Is what she's saying here telling us she's not like the other girls? Especially since they matched him up with a previous one, Nurse Bibbs, for contrast. She's still impossibly young. And her look reminds me of Marilyn Monroe in Let's Make Love. It's very early 60s, tousled blonde. Sweater worn as a dress over tights, which says to me, this is a creation. This is a fantastical creation. So I'm prepared to believe that she is not quite fitting in with everyone else there. And he begins to cry as he watches and listens to her. And now she's the one who doesn't know what he wants. 
yeah, he's mute at the beginning of the film and he's rendered fairly speechless now. Did you have a fear that he's going to regress because of this confrontation, because of this meeting? I didn't at that moment. I didn't quite know what to think. I was more overcome with the idea thinking that these two people, these actors, have nothing but their voices here. They're not even really and truly in the same room together. Right. They meet in a booth in which they're both sequestered, and that's the hotel-themed room with the staticky TV in the background. It's a very vendor's touch. It's a natural extension of the road that he is also preoccupied with motels. And Travis gets aggressive, pursuing this line of questioning about her extracurricular activities. What do you feel like it is that he is trying to figure out in this first visit? That is his regression. His regression is into anger. I assumed that he was trying to figure out what she's been doing in this time and, I think, making his own narrative. Essentially that she will confirm all of his worst fears. So it's more about his jealousy for you and not necessarily trying to figure out if she could provide a suitable home for Hunter? I don't think Hunter is first and foremost in his thoughts here. I don't see how he could be after all this time. I love Kinski's performance, especially that expression on her face when she says they just talk and listen mostly. Well, I don't think this encounter is entirely satisfactory for anyone, most especially Travis. He leaves, and it seems like he and Hunter are just headed back home. He's ready to give up, it feels like. There's a brilliant scene, and I say brilliant just because I love where it takes place. He tells Hunter, this is not a place to bring a fancy woman. Texas is full of places just like this. I love these little towns. And the Paris joke that you referred to earlier, here it comes back into play and it takes a darker turn with this repetition because of Travis's returning awareness. Right before this, this is when I got scared because he goes back to drinking, which he specifically didn't do the first time that we meet him. So I thought, oh God, something terrible is going to happen. It doesn't. Not in that way. When he talks about his mother and his father having this idea of her, but he couldn't see her. So it's not quite rock bottom, I wouldn't say, but it's definitely feeling like mm, maybe we're headed back towards a return to old ways. So he's in no state to navigate or more specifically direct the action from here on. So it's significant that once again, Hunter is the one that steps up and actually makes the choice to go back to Houston. He's the one that decides, Dad, go left. Now, Travis is recording what we realize is a final farewell for Hunter. It's very beautiful. Hunter is in a hotel room listening to this, and Travis talks about how he hoped he would be Hunter's dad. And Hunter showed him that he was. And I think most importantly, he owns up to the idea that this was all his fault what happened, that he tore everything asunder, and still he's making the decision for everyone here, but feels that Hunter belongs with his mother. Travis can't heal any of this, this thing that he may have hoped for, that we may have seen in his face, or even that he couldn't communicate. It's not going to take place. They can't be a family again. The thing that was most interesting to me about the message that he recorded for him, he claims still not to remember why everything went so south. How much of that do you think is just him protecting Hunter versus how much of that is true? He still has yet to fully step into that. 
gosh, when you say it like that, I do almost think it's both. I don't think he fully comes back to it until he sees Jane again. I also feel like there is a bit of protection here. He can't fully tell all of these things to Hunter. Hunter's too young to understand. Though he does share with him this thing that if I were Hunter would be the one thing that would live with me forever about really questioning whether he could live in the world again, face these fears that he had, which then we understand more of what those fears were when he does come back to Jane. Well, that's where we are, that moment of truth. He returns to the peep show, and the overwhelming feeling that I have is that this is unfair to spring on her. There has to be another better way to do this, right? We would all have to go into therapy, and it would be <laughs> meetings that would be arranged like we were getting a new dog. Are you saying you want to get a new dog? No. I'm always getting for a new dog. Three, oh God. Well, he turns his chair away from her, and he tells this story in the third person. So I'm still wondering, he's not accepting full responsibility yet. When he gets to the part about being in and out of work, I think she begins to recognize. This has to be the first time that he is able to tell her these things. I assume, anyway. Do you feel like this is the first time he has a full understanding of their situation and his culpability? I do, because I think he's clearly created this picture of a prison that he created, his fear, his anger, alcohol, jealousy, so that in the end, they both had to escape to run without stopping. Well, she was a kid then, and she's barely more than a kid now, it seems like. In her escape dream, you bring this up, it parallels his wandering in the desert. But the thing that goes along with that, she also has a right to that solitude and self-sovereignty as much as he did. What if she can't take or doesn't want to take Hunter at this point? What if she's in no position to do that? He cannot decide this for her. It's his voice first. And I think there's that specter as well of postpartum depression. He doesn't know if she's been able to work through that. He has no idea. We haven't heard her story yet. Well, he becomes finally as fully grown as I think he's going to be. And he admits his responsibility for the way all of this has gone and he turns to face her, finally. And it's a telling touch, I feel like, that she has to put herself in darkness to see him. She recoils a little bit at the mention of Hunter's name. And now it's her turn to turn away to do her confessional, for lack of a better word. Her speech is done in one beautiful long take. What do you come away with when you compare and contrast these two speeches? They're both incredibly beautiful. What's been written for them? And maybe because she is a woman, possibly identify with her more. But what she has to say here, I think, is incredible and universal. And it's got to be something that other people feel. I didn't have what I knew Hunter needed. And I didn't want to use him to fill all my emptiness. That's an adult thing beyond the years that she had at that point. That's the thing that struck me the most, too. That's the single line of her entire speech that resonates with me the most when I compare it to seeing so many people doing exactly the opposite, not having that sort of awareness. With whatever the thing is, that could be children or something else. Or dogs. <laughs> Why are you looking at me when you say that? <laughs> I do wonder the most poignant thing when she talks about how every man has his voice. And I see that I think she's been wearing her wedding ring this entire time. Is everything ruined for her in terms of that other life, a romantic life, 
a fulfilling life. I think I'm usually more the optimist of the two of us when it comes to this sort of question, but this is a tough one. I don't know. So much has been done. There is so much to overcome. And this is just the very beginning of that, if it happens at all. I'll stick to my optimistic side and say, yes, eventually it's not ruination, but it's going to take a hell of a lot of work between now and then to not feel that way. Because she says she will go to Hunter. She is at least willing to do that. She is not so afraid of it that she won't face it. But she doesn't watch Travis leave, I notice. I think, again, a very important detail. I'm sure she's sick of having done that. She doesn't want to do that anymore. And those last moments are incredibly joyous and almost impossibly tender. Mother and son reunited, embracing each other in the hotel room, holding each other, that beautiful full-body twirl. So if you're saying this is joyous, once we see them together, you feel like Travis has ultimately done the right thing? Do you feel renewal? I do feel optimistic. I really do think that the four of them, not Travis, Walt, Anne, Hunter, and Jane, I think that they are going to find a way to make a life all together that's going to feel good for them. And one last time, I bring up this whole finale is bathed in green. The two of them in the hotel room, Travis watching from a distant parking lot. In this color scheme, and talking about subverted expectations, does green translate as danger now, or is it just indicative of a critical juncture? I think it's back to security. I think it's home. Well, the scenes that bookend the film, at least, they frame this as a Western. So we begin and end wrestling with this mythical idea. It's part of that tradition of the Lone Ranger, Shane, riding off into the sunset when their work is done. Your gratitude is their only reward. We are so conditioned by decades of film language to see this as heroic, but it could just as easily be seen as spineless in this case. Everyone's life is completely upended right now, Travis has just transferred the heartbreak and is now moving on. How do you reconcile this contradiction of finding your family by leaving it? I do think that for him, this final retreat, rather than some sort of pat resolution, is incredibly fitting, especially for a Sam Shepard character. I think that he has put right two things that he needed to put right, one of which was for his brother and his wife to let them know that he's not dead, that he's there, so they have at least some way to move forward. Something other than a limbo that they are in. Of course, it is a major transition. The other thing to say to Jane, this was my fault. And I can now get out of the way so that you can be with your son again in a completely different circumstance. And then for Hunter to give him some insight to his father, to a way forward to be a man in some respects, an adult, to hopefully be a different person than these other men who couldn't see these women. A lot of what it says is true to me, that's for sure, particularly that stasis is unsatisfying. This notion that the only answer to that lies within the desire to stay lost. Everyone needs a different thing, and Travis has done a little bit in each relationship, even if accidentally, even if selfishly, to give all of these other players a touch of what they need, at least get them pointed down the path that they need to follow for their own happiness? I'm thinking about Vendors and Shepard sharing that capability to have characters that are moving away from something, not toward something, but they're able to give it to those other characters who do need it, who do need to be moving towards something, to have something to hold on to. 
And I think major credit also goes to Elm Kit Carson, who was a Texan, by the way. He worked on the final screenplay version, and that's also Allison Anders. They're really credited together with shaping that third act. Well, this one was chosen by our listeners. We didn't pick this particular film to talk about, but we certainly would have eventually, right? We have Wings of Desire, Alice in the Cities, and this. Does this complete our shared trifecta of favorite vendors films? Would the American Friends sneak in there for you? Absolutely. We've talked about all of these briefly in our Ants in the Pants episodes. The Road Trilogy, Paris, Texas. We did the episode on Wings of Desire. I think, probably because it was my first, Wings of Desire is always going to be my favorite. I mean, Peter Falk is an angel in it for Pete's sake, but this is just incredible and there's so much to think about and sink your teeth into. So I'm delighted that we got this opportunity. It also struck me in reading more about this that this feels incredibly poignant right now too because so many of the people who shaped this story are fairly recently gone from us. So it feels even more like an elegy for this time period in this place. That's Harry Dean Stanton, that's Robbie Mueller, that's Sam Shepard, and that's L.M. Kit Carson. And I want to share one last story. I think you know this story. Allison Anders was a production assistant on the film and, in her words, lied her ass off <laughs> to get a grant in order to go work with vendors without actually telling him that that was her intention. Then when she finally told him she got the grant, she told him the story. He said, well, I guess you have to come now. And that was film school in action for her. And she has a great story about being a pivotal part in helping Harry Dean Stanton to find this character. He was frustrated. Why won't this guy speak? Is he a mute? Is it something else? And she took a leap and she spoke up and shared a story about her teen years when she was catatonic. She explained why she wasn't ready to speak. I just felt like it was all too much. I had too much to say, and if I said it, I'd really lose it. That was the key for Harry Dean Stanton, and he thanked her forever. So the lesson there is lie, cheat, and steal your way onto any project that you can. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and make sure you had something really interesting happen to you when you were a kid <laughs> that you can play on. Well, speaking of really interesting, here's a segue for you. How about a <laughs> recommendation? Now, I wrestled with this one for a while. Okay, but I guess I do for all of them. And I finally settled on Mud from 2012, written and directed by Jeff Nichols, with Matthew McConaughey, Ty Sheridan, Jacob Laughlin, Sam Shepard, Jodon Baker, and Reese Witherspoon. Two young boys encounter a fugitive and form a pact to help him evade the vigilantes on his trail and reunite him with his true love. I chose this one for a few reasons. One, it's great, and I hope if anyone missed it the first time around that they'll check it out now. Second, it's that Sam Shepard connection. He has a key supporting role here. Third, I really like what Jeff Nichols is crafting around other American mainstay themes, which may or may not be myths when you look at them closely. One of those is around fathers and sons, and in Mud, there's another parallel to Paris, Texas, and not being able to truly see the woman you're in love with. How about you? My recommendation is David Holtzman's Diary from 1967, and that was written and directed by James McBride, who I know you love from The Big Easy. I do love The Big Easy. Are you joking? No, he made that. Yeah, I, think, I love that movie. And this one stars L.M. Kit Carson, and it's an approximation of cinema verite, 
a fake documentary about a man who is so wrapped up in film and so self-obsessed that it wrecks his life and relationships. Kit Carson is obviously the connection here, and this character that he embodies is someone that cinephiles will definitely recognize as someone we know, or worse, someone that we've been or currently are. <laughs> Think French New Wave by way of Manhattan. Not the Woody Allen movie, but the actual location. We follow David over the course of several days while he's making a video diary in search of some greater truth. And I put that in big quotation marks. In his case, that truth involves a lot of exploiting the people that cross his path with his camera. And the way the film balances its awareness of his lack of self-awareness is a pretty neat balancing act. And if you want to talk about withholding information from the audience, this is a fantastic example. Only after all is said and done is it revealed to the audience that Carson is an actor playing this part, that it's fiction. It was billed as a documentary at its earliest screenings, and so some of those audiences were quite upset when that reveal came. They felt like McBride was a fraud, that this was a complete sham, that it was delegitimizing the form. I like it, though, that agitation. I like the questions it forces the audiences to ask about this format and themselves. I really enjoy this film. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Mud and David Holtzman's Diary. And that brings us to the end of episode 100. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes. There are 50 of those over there now. And those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you'll never have to go a week without New Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We wanted to say a special thanks to Matthew Kaplowitz this time around. He recently sat down with us to discuss his film Nothing Changes, Art for Hank's Sake with us. And you'll be able to find that interview on our Patreon. And we're making that one available to everyone, patrons or not, so everyone can find out more about one of our favorite documentaries of 2018. We wanted to continue to highlight some of the wonderful shows on our new podcast network, The 25th Frame. This time around, I wanted to talk for a second about movies silently. This is one I am very excited about. Fritzi Kramer, who has been writing about silent film online for the last 10 years, has joined us to make her first leap into the podcast realm as well. And her first episode just went up a bit ago, and I thought it was fascinating. She and her guest, Christopher Bird, had an in-depth discussion about the process of movie tinting and a number of other things. I am so glad this podcast exists. Silent film is an area of our cultural history that's often neglected, sadly even in cinephile circles, and Fritzi is a great, extremely knowledgeable ambassador to that world. You're going to have fun and learn a lot of cool stuff that you didn't know. For me, I'm so excited because it is something that I don't see a lot of, and I know so many of the players, but I know so few of the films. So check out Movies Silently wherever you get your podcasts or at 25thframemedia.com. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Travis Trudell, Phil DeCane, Drew Tavendale, David Blakesley, Daisuke Beppu, Doug McCambridge, Dean Estes, and the Pod Police. 
If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and now at the 25th frame. Just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. Thank you this time to iTunes user Andy Fro for leaving us a very nice review and rating. We appreciate that very much. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. Once again, big thanks to everyone for picking this. This was such a fun movie to get to revisit. We're glad we can always count on our listeners to always make such great suggestions. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Fifth Frame, a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.